Father, we thank you that as we're thinking about the Holy Spirit this evening, we're thinking about the very person who is our supreme teacher. We remember that the Lord Jesus said the Holy Spirit would teach us all things and lead us into all truth. And Father, we want your Holy Spirit to help us now this evening in this very place to do these very things, to teach us what you want us to know and understand, to help us to relate to what you're saying to us and to enter into whatever you may be holding out to us. So please, Father, help us by your Holy Spirit now. Help me as I think and speak and help us all as we listen and respond to what you're saying. In Jesus' name. At conversion, we are introduced to the supernatural. Now, I think many Christians have a conversion which is very evidently a supernatural conversion because the Holy Spirit is the only person who can make that happen. We're born again of the Spirit, as we know from the Scriptures. But I think many people, probably including myself, were not initially terribly aware of having been ushered into a whole new realm the realm of the supernatural. Now the Bible makes it very clear to us that there are two realms of the supernatural. There's the safe one and the unsafe one. And the safe one is, of course, the supernatural realm of God and his angels. The unsafe one is the supernatural realm of the devil and his demons. And you remember in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were solemnly warned not to get involved in that whole area which we call the occult, which literally means hidden things, things that are concealed. And yet many, many people in their thirst for supernatural knowledge or power, they try to tap into the wrong supernatural area. The whole business of horoscopes and Ouija boards and spiritism in any shape or form is all part of that one messy situation, that place which the Lord forbids us to go, warning us that if we go there, we will not come out the way we go in. The scriptures warn us in Leviticus 19.31 and Deuteronomy 18.10 that if we go into these forbidden territories in the supernatural realm of the evil one, then we are defiled. We are damaged spiritually. And not only are we affected in that way, but God is affected too. He is deeply and highly offended and greatly displeased because he knows we have done something very foolish and very dangerous. And of course, once you go into that area, you remain to some extent affected by it until released from it. Quite a thought. For Jesus, the supernatural realm was obviously the natural realm. He is, after all, the Son of God and came from heaven. How much at home are you and I this evening in the supernatural realm? Is it our natural realm? You see, once we are ushered into that realm, it should increasingly become a realm in which we feel at home, very much at home. When we experience being baptized in the Spirit, we begin to get a taste of spiritual gifts, as we thought last week, thinking a little bit about the evidence of tongues and prophecy in the life of the church. These are tasters, if you like, of gifts of the Spirit. Now, God's gifts are intended to be used. I used to have a reputation, if you gave me a new shirt, <laughs> you wouldn't see it for about five years. I would keep it in a drawer in a safe place, and would be a long, long time in getting around to using it. But when God gives us gifts, he loves to see us using them. And both Paul and Peter teach us that that's the appropriate thing to do. For example, in Romans 12, Paul says, We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, says the same sort of thing in a somewhat different way. Peter says there in chapter 4, 
He says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So what are we doing this evening? We're having a look at, not all perhaps, there won't be time, but most of these spiritual gifts as they are called. And the teaching lies in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. Now you may say, Sandy, well it's actually in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But no, I'm insisting in chapter 13 as well, because though it's all about love, or very largely about love, that is so important that it should come between the other two chapters. Because the whole acceptance and use of spiritual gifts really must take place in an atmosphere and environment of love. So, in 1 Corinthians 12, we have a list of nine gifts. I'm going to take time just to read these verses through, and you will notice that I'm not going to translate just exactly the same as the NIV, because in some parts the NIV is not very good in translating this passage. Paul begins by saying, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. And the minute he says that, of course, we know that he's going to talk or write about something important. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, before you became Christians, in other words, somehow or other you were influenced, led astray to dumb idols. Evil spirits, Satan spirits, will lead us into idolatry. Therefore, says Paul, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. I mean, it's, it's unimaginable, it's, it's unthinkable that anybody controlled by the Spirit of God should make, make a statement like that. Jesus, be cursed. Of course not. Then he goes on to say, however, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, you could mouse the words, I imagine, but... To have a sincere declaration of Jesus as Lord of my life, that is evidence of the Spirit at work in our lives. And that is the simplest and shortest, perhaps, of all Christian professions of faith. Jesus is Lord, my Lord. Now, here are the gifts. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. And as I said, they're gifts. Don't make the mistake of thinking of them as rewards. They are gifts. And at this point we might just stop to distinguish between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Christians are always usually aware of the fruit of the Spirit, ninefold in Galatians chapter 5. What is the purpose of the fruit of the Spirit in a Christian's life? Well, it's very simple. The purpose of the fruit of the Spirit in a Christian's life is to reproduce in the Christian the likeness of Christ, the likeness of our Lord Jesus. It's to make us more Christ-like, love, joy, peace, etc. You're familiar with the list, I imagine. <coughs> well, if that's the purpose of the fruit of the Spirit, to make us more like Jesus in our character, in our lifestyle, what is the purpose of the gifts? It's to equip us to function more like Jesus in his actions, in his conduct. And remember, he moved in the power of the supernatural very, very frequently. So that's why we have these spiritual gifts. The list of nine gifts includes these. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, and the manifestation means that these, these gifts are an expression, a visible, audible expression of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Yes, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what purpose? For the common good. That's very important to grasp that. Because some people think, oh, I would like a few of these gifts of the Spirit. Make me feel good. Oh, forget it. There is one gift and a second one, perhaps, tongues and interpretation, which, as we shall see, are largely, partly, for personal enrichment. But the main purpose of these gifts of the Spirit are to bless others. Oh, yes. There are different kinds of service but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men, all people. 
Now, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one that is given through the Spirit a word of wisdom, to another a word of knowledge, the means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers or power to work miracles by another Spirit, by the same Spirit. To another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each just as he determines. I remember years ago when a lot of Christians were being baptized in the Spirit and receiving gifts of the Spirit, Understandably, quite a number of senior, mature Christians who had been very genuine Christians for many years, they were quite upset. Because they said, these people are just spiritual babies. Why are they getting these gifts? Why are they getting them so early in life? What about us? And that brings us back, of course, to the difference between the fruit and the gifts. Fruit grows. And growth takes time. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to produce more and more of his fruit in us, we should become more and more Christ-like as we advance in our Christian life. But you see, the gifts of the Spirit are not a reward, as we said. They are to do a job, to get things done, to bless people. And why should God not give them to baby Christians, young Christians, new Christians, as well as to those who have been quite a long time on the way? The gifts, the nine gifts, can be conveniently divided into three groups. Let's begin this evening by thinking of what are called the speaking gifts. Speaking gifts, what would they be? Tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. What can we say about tongues without going into too much detail? Well, tongues are described in the New Testament. These gifts of the spirit tongues are described as being new. Mark 16, 17, Jesus said, These signs will follow those who believe. They will speak in new tongues. Now, obviously, they are new, first of all, to the age of the Spirit, because unlike the other gifts of the Spirit, like prophecy and, and healing and miracles and so on, there is no evidence in the Old Testament of the gift of tongues, nor indeed in the Gospels of the gift of tongues in operation. That belongs to the new age of the Holy Spirit. And also, obviously, they belong as new, as something new, to those who possess them. When you get a new gift, it's different from the one you got last Christmas, you hope. Um, it's new. It's new to you. You haven't seen it before, perhaps. Anyway, the point is, both in Jewish experience, Gentile experience, and the experience of those people we thought about in Ephesus last Sunday, the gift of tongues or prophecy was something completely new. Up to that point, they had never experienced this before. These tongues, then, are properly called new tongues, but they're also properly recognized as known tongues. Some people who criticize well, they rather rudely call the tongues movement. Some people who criticize the whole exercise of gifts of the Spirit, they have the temerity to suggest that these are not languages at all. They're just gibberish. People are just coming out with noises, with sounds which are not languages. That is simply not true. How do we know? Well, we go back to the day of Pentecost to find out. And there we find that when the Spirit fell on the believers in Jerusalem, immediately the Spirit fell upon them, and they were filled with the Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. And there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven would come specially for the Feast of Pentecost. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? They were speaking actual languages that were supernaturally given to them, which they had never naturally learned. That's worth bearing in mind. 
The gift of tongues are new tongues and are known tongues and that also uh, the evidence of scripture points to the fact that in God's opinion they are necessary tongues. They're not just add-on extras that we can do without. What are they for? Well they're necessary primarily for the edification or building up of Christians. In chapter 14 verse 4 Paul says he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself but he who prophesies edifies the church. We get our English word edifice from this other, other word edify which simply means to build up. And that is a great purpose that God has in giving us these gifts of the Spirit. They are intended when properly used to enrich our lives because you see Paul stresses that they are for strengthening, encouragement and comfort. And all these are components in building up Christian believers. Paul desired everybody to have the gift of tongues. He says so in chapter 14, verse 5. He says, uh, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. In verse 18 he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He obviously was very, very fluent in tongues. And there is a distinction here between Christians' experience. Some Christians feel a bit limited in their exercise of tongues. They're not very fluent. They seem to have a fairly short repertoire, for want of a better word. And others, again, can pray in tongues for 10, 15 minutes and never seem to repeat themselves. And, well, that's just variety. God's variety. That's the way I see it, anyway. Paul points out, interestingly, that both mind and spirit are involved in both praying and singing. Now, we're accustomed to praying with our minds and singing using our minds, but Paul says here in, in chapter 14, verse 14, he says, What shall I do? Um, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. You see, when we are actually praying in tongues, our mind is not at all involved. It is in neutral for that time being. My mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? Ah, he said, I will pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind. In other words, I'll pray in tongues sometimes, but I'll pray with my mind at other times. Likewise singing. I will sing with my spirit sometimes, but I will also sing with my mind and I have noticed over the years that even non-Christians in a Christian gathering or service or meeting if people sing in tongues non-Christians who are present will often remark oh that was just beautiful and very often there's a, there's a, a real beauty uh, about the whole sound that comes forth of singing in the spirit, singing in tongues. Now here's a shock to some people. Uh, in chapter 14 verse 26, Paul is teaching us that the gift of tongues, the exercise of the gift of tongues, is normal, not abnormal, but normal in a church meeting or service. Verse 26, chapter 14, what then shall we say? When you come together, everyone... Everyone, anybody in the congregation who knows the Lord has a contribution to make. Everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Most modern Christians have narrowed that down to, well, maybe everyone might have a hymn, but beyond that, uh, it's usually the worship leader who chooses the songs and hymns that we sing and it's usually the preacher who brings the word of instruction and there's no reference in many modern churches to revelation or tongue or interpretation but in the New Testament church this was how they did church uh, some people don't like that phrase I rather think it's quite a useful phrase doing church doing what we do when we come together as church and in the other church they exercised what has come to be known in modern church life as body ministry. Now body ministry simply means that anybody in the congregation can contribute 
during the service. Obviously, it has to be done in a loving manner, in a, an appropriate manner. But somebody could say, can we sing hymn so-and-so? Can we sing chorus number so-and-so? Somebody else can say, you know, I believe God is giving me a revelation. Can I share it? Yes. Somebody else prays in tongues and somebody else brings an interpretation. Oh, so instead of having one worship leader and one preacher, you've got a whole bunch of people contributing to the actual time of worship. At least that's how they did it in the early church. Anyway, now here's a, a thing that must be taken seriously. In this whole consideration of praying in tongues, Scripture clearly states, Paul says in verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 14, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And any church that has in its constitution, in this church, speaking in tongues is forbidden. Any church where it's an unwritten rule that in this church you must not speak and pray in tongues, then that church is flying in the face of the teaching of Scripture, where Paul says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's simply underlining again, in the purposes of God, the gift of tongues serves a useful purpose and should be treated as such. A lot of the story comes through Ian Andrews from a situation in America where the, a largest congregation was hosting a missionary weekend and they had a man in that congregation who was in the habit during the worship times of standing up and praying in tongues. And they, they were accustomed to that. They, they, they did that sort of thing in that church. But then they were having this missionary conference with people coming from all over the place, from all kinds of churches, where in some cases they would completely, not ban, but seem to discourage any such activity. So the elders got hold of this man before the weekend and said, look, do you think you could just please, this Sunday, refrain from praying in tongues because, um, well, some people will be here, will be coming to us who would be confused and bewildered and probably upset if you did that. Well, the conference took place and lo and behold, during the worship time, your man got up, as usual, <laughs> and prayed in tongues. But the end of the story is quite beautiful, really. Because after the service, one delegate to that conference, who was a missionary, he served as a missionary in the Far East, he came up to this man and prayed in tongues and he said, what you did this morning was so wonderful, he said. You were praying in the language of the people I have been serving as a missionary for 15 years. Whoa, how about that? Praying in tongues. Well, let's move on to think briefly about interpretation. I don't know what you think of when you come across that word interpretation in that context. Many people, I think, substitute the word translation. But that's misleading. Because the interpretation may or may not be a translation. You see, Paul teaches that when we're praying in tongues, we're praying. It's praying. It's this way, not that way. When we're prophesying, we're speaking out to those around us. When we're praying, we're speaking out to God. And he says, when you're praying in tongues, you're praying. Ah, so if it was a pure translation, what would the interpretation be? It would be the prayer in English. Yes, surely. But that's very often not what happens. It can sometimes but very often what happens is more like a response from God to what has been said to God in prayer in tongues. And sometimes the interpretation comes from the same person, sometimes it comes from somebody else. And sometimes it's sung. Sometimes someone will stand up and sing in the Spirit. And they'll sit down and someone else will stand up and sing exactly the same tune. An unknown tune. To the same, to the words in English. That is remarkable. I've witnessed that. Interpretation can be viewed in two different levels, in a sense in private. In private, interpretation is not necessary. Because Paul teaches that when you pray in tongues, you edify yourself. Something happens to you spiritually. I think I said this last week. See, when I have my prayer time in the morning, I always start praying in tongues. Because it's far easier to launch into praying in tongues than to launch into, into praying in English when you're feeling a bit sluggish. Mm. Yes, it is. 
and so easy after praying in tongues and to break into the English and pray for the next 15, 20 minutes or whatever. So in private, there may be a response, but it's not essential. After being baptized in the Spirit in 1972, in 1973, I would pray quite frequently in tongues in my prayer time, and on many occasions the Lord would give me a word. His response to my praying in tongues was a word from him. And I would write down these words. And at that point I was involved with a family whose granny was a spiritist and the whole family was really adversely affected by her spiritism. And uh, the Lord was giving me an exceptional kind of burden for this woman and her family and so on. And one time on one of these occasions when I prayed in tongues, as soon as I'd stopped praying in tongues, I'd been praying for this family, this woman and her family. And the Lord gave me a word I wrote down and I've never forgotten it. He said, I will give you the children of the devil and they will shine as gems in the crown of the Redeemer. Oh, I'm sure I was in tears when I got that. What a, what a response from God. And we saw at least five members of that family saved and especially the granny one who was 40 years in spiritism. What an encouraging word that was. Praying for somebody whose family, particularly herself, was burned by satanic power. And the Lord saying, listen, I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to give you these people who spiritually are the children of the devil. You see, if you're not a Christian, children of God, Christians are children of God. But our spiritual affiliation before we're Christians is not with God, for the devil. Oh, dear, 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 dear. But in public, in public, the interpretation is important. It really is essential, as Paul teaches, because he says there in chapter 14, verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. Who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so the church may be edified. So, in a gathering of Christians, if somebody prays in tongues, then we should wait. The interpretation may not come immediately, and it's important that we pause and wait for that interpretation to come. And obviously it's obtainable. In verse 13 of chapter uh, 14, Paul says, For this reason a man who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. In other words, if you're in a meeting and you, you, you have a gift of tongues, um, and you don't have the gift of interpretation, you don't know anybody else in the meeting to know whether or not any of them have the gift of interpretation, well you really shouldn't pray in tongues because in a meeting it's meant to be only used when it can be followed by the gift of interpretation. But in verse 28 uh, of chapter 14, Paul has said, um, yes, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. That's, that's the passage I was looking for. So I want to move on now from tongues and interpretation to, to prophecy, because this, in a sense, is an area where, no doubt, we feel a little more at home. It's important, right away, to distinguish the prophecy we're talking about here as a gift of the Spirit from the prophecy of Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., 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 in the Scriptures. Scripture prophecy is Holy Scripture in a class by itself. The infallible Word of God for generations of believers. That is unalterable and perfect. But we're talking about something different. Along the same lines, because it has to do with communicating truth from God. Prophecy is important. That, as I mentioned at the beginning, is one reason why Paul says he doesn't want his readers to be ignorant about these gifts of the Spirit, because it is clearly important. And on the day of Pentecost, of course, when Peter got up to preach, uh, you know that he took his text for preaching from the prophecy of Joel, in the Old Testament, where God had prophesied through Joel the last days God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams even though my servants, both men and women I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. 
So this gift of prophecy was prophesied 400 years before it came into operation. It's important. Secondly, it's imperfect. The prophecies, Isaiah, Jeremiah, scripture prophecy, it's perfect. We can trust every word of it. But the prophecy as a gift of the Spirit is imperfect. Can you guess why it's imperfect? Because we're imperfect. That's why. I'll look with you a moment at First Corinthians 13. You see, in chapter 13, Paul writes about love, but he doesn't just write about love. He says there in verse 8, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, they will pass away. And of course the critics say, well, there you are. There you are. Paul told us that after a while, prophecy and tongues would disappear. And supernatural knowledge, they would disappear. They're only here for a short time until we get the whole New Testament available to us. Wrong. Read on. Read on. Verse 9. We know in part, our knowledge in other words is, is imperfect, and we prophesy in part. It's partial, it's imperfect. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Ah, here's the key bit coming now. Now, he says, we see but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face. What is Paul talking about? The time when the New Testament was completed, not a bit of it. He's talking about the time when we see Jesus face to face, and that's still in the future. Now we see but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And that gives the lie to those who say that these gifts of the Spirit were withdrawn around the end of the first century. They were nothing of the kind. It is important. It is imperfect. Now we get examples of the imperfection of prophecy as a gift of the Spirit. Here's what happens. A Christian in a meeting senses the Lord giving him or her a message that is meant to be shared with the congregation. And either they have freedom in that congregation to get up and share it or they have to go and speak with the leader of the service first and check it out and see if they think it's okay to share it at that point in time and then they get up and speak and they begin to speak out what God has just spoken in half an hour ago or ten minutes ago and understandably they're, they're, they're doing something of spiritual consequence and they get a bit carried away just like preachers get a bit carried away and what do they do? They add a bit on at the end. Oh, what do you know? Because you see, if you're spiritually discerning, you can sense when the actual prophecy from God comes to an end and when the commentary from the prophet or prophetess is tagged on at the end. So you can smile. It's not a sin. It's not fatal. It just reminds us that this kind of prophecy is imperfect. But that doesn't mean we should despise it or reject it. It's also true to say that this kind of prophecy is, you could call it local. It's for this time and this people in this place. Of course, sometimes it is personal. Sometimes God gives you a prophetic word, not for the congregation, not for the other believers in the church, but for one individual, maybe a fellow Christian, maybe even not a fellow Christian, although normally it's for Christians. I was a chaplain for many years in hospital, and on one occasion in the hospital, I went to speak to this young man whom I hadn't seen in my life before, and before I knew what I was doing, I was prophesying over him. I was telling him something about his future. Well, that's one form of evangelism, isn't it? You start telling him what the future is, but you better do it only when you've heard from God. Anyway, it's normally for this time, this people, this place. And the people to whom it is normally given, they are the believers, the local family of God. So, uh, 22, 25, what have I got here? 
Oh yes. Uh, he says tongues, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. <coughs> Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and someone who doesn't understand or some unbelievers come in, they will will they not say that you are out of your mind? Yes, they probably will. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare so he will fall down and worship God exclaiming God is really among you. So you see it could be an evangelistic contribution. If somebody is prophesying and an unbeliever is in the meeting an unbeliever could say hey, hey, I, that, that's for me. I know that's for me. And I'm being convicted of my sin. And I want to know Jesus. And get right with God. Now the purpose as we've seen. Is to, to edify or build up. One little paragraph. Before we leave prophecy. Well. The procedure by which its use is governed. First of all. There is the faith required. To speak it out. In Romans. Uh, 12. I mentioned the verse already. Paul says, We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. What does he mean? Well, especially if you're a beginner in this school of prophecy, and the Lord, you believe, clearly gives you this word, it may be a simple word, it may be a little longer, more complicated, and you sense that the Lord wants you to stand up and speak it out but then you panic you say oh was that really the Lord or was it my lively imagination and at that point you have a faith crisis you have to know by faith that you really did hear the Lord it wasn't your imagination and by the way uh, when we sometimes think it's the devil has got into so confusion the evidence of scripture points to the fact that the Lord always gets in first. The devil comes trundling along afterwards and tries to overthrow what God has said. God usually gets in first. So you can trust what he says and act and speak out what he has spoken in. And there's a freedom given for its use. You see Paul teaches there uh, verse 29 in 1 Corinthians 14. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. In other words, prophecy is never intended to take over a whole church service. Not at all. That's not on, says Paul. That's not on, says God. Two or three prophecies per service, that'll be quite enough, thank you. Two or three prophets at a time. And the others should weigh what is said. Oh, oh. Also, it says further down the line here, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. And that's an important element of teaching because sometimes people get carried away in bringing a prophecy. It might be some very powerful word, very relevant word. And they get carried away and they go on and on and they're, they're way beyond the prophetic part they're doing this they're just making, adding their own commentary as they go along and the elders or the pastor takes them aside afterwards and said, said you know what they did just now was out of order out of order oh but I couldn't help it not true not true because Paul teaches that the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets so while God is speaking through the prophet the prophet is not out of control the prophet could stop just like that if he or she wanted. But some get carried away in a kind of ungodly way and just go way beyond what they should be doing. Now, one more thing is very important. The fellowship which keeps it safe. Because you can imagine, you see, in some congregations there are some strange people. Not here, of course, in the Buddhist mind, but in some <laughs> congregations there really are, believe me, some strange people. And let them loose with things like prophecy and there would be a bit of a liability. Oh, yes. So, what is the safeguard? 
Well, we just saw it that two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And Paul backs that up in what he writes to the Christians in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this, Do not put out the Spirit's fire, or King James Version, do not quench the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. And then, Paul says, test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. So you see, leading a church service actually becomes a slightly more scary business once people get loose <laughs> and gifts of the Spirit, you see? Because the person up front who's leading the service may on occasion have to take authority and say, look, that's not in order. Please sit down. Or if uh, there are a bunch of learners just moving into the things of the Spirit, this is all new, uh, and, and we're feeling a bit kind of just feeling our way in the gifts of the Spirit, then if something is done which is not quite right, and the person up front needs to, turn that, needs to turn that into a teaching opportunity. Just a few words to explain what ought to have happened. And what did happen was not seriously wrong, but it wasn't really what should have been happening in that context. Now, very quickly, let me take time, just still on prophecy, very quickly, just to run over uh, ways of testing a prophetic word. One, does it glorify Jesus? If it doesn't, it's not of God. Does it strengthen the church? If it doesn't, it's not of God. Does it agree with Scripture? If it contradicts Scripture, it is clearly, clearly not of God. Does it come with sensitivity? Because, you see, we're warned in Ephesians 4, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Why is that warning in Scripture? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Because, though the Holy Spirit is all-powerful, He is very, very sensitive and can easily be grieved. And we are warned not to expect someone to bring a prophecy who is, you know, arrogant and insensitive and you better listen to me kind of thing. No, we don't want that. You must become with a sensitive spirit. Does it come from somebody who is sincere? Somebody who is really genuine, sincere? Does it come from someone who is in submission? Now here's a hard one. Because, you see, Scripture teaches us to submit to God, James chapter 4, to submit to one another, Ephesians chapter 5, and to submit to our leaders, which some Christians find very difficult to do. Hmm, Hebrews 13. First, finally, does it come from someone who is willing that it should be tested? If someone comes up to the leader of the meeting and says, you know, I've got a prophecy, no need to test it, sit down, brother, sit down, brother. Don't want that prophecy. Now, uh, we'll not cover all these nine gifts of the Spirit tonight, otherwise we really will be late in finishing. But we've thought about these speaking gifts, and now I want to take you to the next group, which are called the power gifts. And the power gifts are miracles, and healings, and faith. Power gifts, because uh, powerful things are happening when these things come together. Let's begin with faith. Faith is something that everyone has and everyone exercises every day. Non-Christians as well as Christians. Every time you get on a bus to go into town, you have faith to believe that the bus will not crash, it will not go on fire, you'll get safely into Glasgow. If you go out for a meal and sit down and order your food and you don't know who bought it or who cooked it and you have faith to believe there's no poison in it. We all exercise faith every day virtually. Yes. But when it comes to supernatural things, faith obviously is of a different order. It reaches beyond the natural, the physical and the material. There is, first of all, saving faith. Saving faith. Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. God reaches down to us in his grace. We reach up to him by faith. It's an act of faith. You can't become a Christian without exercising faith. Saving faith. Then there's living faith. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says we 
Christians live by faith, not by sight. In other words, if we're facing some important decision, we don't just use our eyes and our ears and our minds and weigh up this and that and the next thing and then make a decision. No, 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 no. We live by faith. Yes, we use our eyes. Yes, we use our minds. Yes, we use our ears. But we finally, or even first of all, reach out to God and ask clearly for his guidance, his direction, his wisdom. We're living by faith, not by sight. But then we come to this faith that baffles a bit in 1 Corinthians 12. This is special faith in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. So there are occasions which really call for miraculous intervention. And God has made provision for these things. If you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, the day before, as Jesus passed and saw a fig tree that had no fruit on it, he cursed it. And the next day, he and his disciples passed that tree again. And, amazingly, they saw that the fig tree cursed the day before had withered from the roots. How did Jesus respond to this amazement in his disciples? He said, have faith in God. Literally have the faith of God. Have a faith which rests on God. A faith which you didn't work up but God gave you. A gift of faith. Have the faith of God. Oh, I tell you, said Jesus, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you might receive it, that you will receive it. No, that you have received it. Oh, and it will be yours. Now this level of faith is a supernatural faith, given probably very seldom to a few privileged people who are involved in some situation which really calls for some drastic, divine, miraculous, supernatural intervention. Something is an obstacle that really, really is going to cause enormous damage if it's not dealt with. We're not talking about little mountains being dumped into little seas. We're talking about situations we sometimes encounter in life. And occasionally, someone will be given by God this supernatural faith that will enable them to address that problem and command it to go. And it will. That is rare, but it's possible. Faith of that order. Yes, well, that's worth remembering. Let's move over to the whole area of healings. Scripture presents God as being able and willing to heal. You remember the Israelites were not very far out of Egypt when there was a bit of a crisis and they came across water they couldn't drink, it was poisonous and so on. And in that context, the Lord revealed himself by a new name. And he said, I am the Lord, your healer. Interestingly, you're having a series of evening meetings on that very subject. The name is the Lord. I am the Lord, your healer. Jehovah Rapha. And if I'm not mistaken, that word Rapha is the same word used in Israel today for a doctor. And the Lord was saying two and a half thousand years ago, I am your doctor. I am the one who heals you. Jehovah Rophika. Psalm 103 is familiar to most Christians. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Forget not his, his good things. He heals all my diseases. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. But I want to take you to a verse in the Psalms which probably is hardly known at all. It's one of those Psalms where the psalmist is recalling the history of Israel. Psalm 105, verse 37. If you're taking notes, make sure you get that number right. Psalm 105, verse 37. Well, the psalmist writes about God and his involvement of bringing the Israelites out from the bondage of his Egypt. 
He brought out Israel, laden with silver and gold, and from among their tribes no one faltered. The Living Bible paraphrases that there were no sick and feeble folk among them then. Today's English version translates that all of them were healthy and strong. What happened? Well, you see, they were about to face an enormous journey. They were about to actually spend 40 years in the desert. They didn't know that at the time. But the Lord knew that things would go wrong. And they'd have a long trek through that desert. And even if they'd only a short journey to make, how could disabled people, how could seriously ill people set off on a journey of these proportions? Well, they couldn't. My friend who told the story about the, the missionary conference in America, he maintains that that last meal they shared in Egypt before they left was a very significant occasion. Because you remember they had been told to take a lamb for a household and slaughter the lamb and sprinkle the lamb's blood in the lintel of the doorposts and the Lord said that judgment would come in the nation of Egypt that night, angel of death would pass through, but when I see the blood I will pass over you. You will be safe beneath the blood of the lamb. And these same people who slaughtered the lamb and sprinkled his blood in their homes were instructed and indeed commanded to eat the lamb, to cook the lamb, to roast the lamb and eat the lamb. So their last meal in Egypt was a wonderful roast lamb supper. And my friend maintains that as they sat and ate their roast lamb supper, God went to work on every single one of them and there were a huge number of people healing all who were ill in any way whatsoever so that come the morning they were ready to start that route march I find that quite believable I don't know about you you see they had to be healed for that in that situation they simply had to be to undertake the journey ahead of them and God did it he proved what he said a little later, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, your healer. Remember that nothing is impossible with God. These are the words that the angel Gabriel, Archangel Gabriel, said to Mary. His last words to Mary were, Nothing is impossible with God. Well, Jesus himself, apart from his own ministry of healing, you remember very clearly without going into detail Luke 9 tells us he sent out the 12 apostles to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick he sent out 72 more Luke chapter 10 same commission preach the kingdom of God heal the sick deal with the demonized cast out demons a healing ministry and John 14 12 Jesus said this amazing thing in his farewell talk to his disciples the things that I have done you will be doing too and greater things than these you will do because I'm going to my Father. I still struggle to believe that, you know. That is so amazing. That we should be somehow able to do not only what Jesus did, well, to go beyond what Jesus did, obviously, in sheer numbers of people fanning out across the world. That, that makes sense. But greater things than these you will do, said Jesus. And here they operated for three and a half years in wonderful, wonderful, supernatural power. So you see, we should not be surprised that healings still occur supernaturally in and through the body of Christ. <coughs> we know very well that not all who are prayed for are healed. That's the rather sad side of the story. But the fact is, some are amazingly healed quite amazingly healed I mentioned already I was a chaplain in the Southern General Hospital for many years and in the church in Govan we had a number of Nigerian Christians, men and women of tremendous faith, tremendous faith my faith felt very small beside theirs and there was a boy in one of the wards in the Southern General Hospital, a boy about 7 or 8 years of age who had been badly injured in an accident 
and the medics had just about given up hope of doing anything effective for him. The parents were told, we're sorry about this, but you know, your, your laddie will never play football again. He'll, he'll just, he, he won't be able to run, he won't be able to walk even normally. Well, I shared this with two of our Nigerian brothers in the church in Govan. They said, we'll go down and pray for him. And these two men went down to that ward in the Southern General Hospital. They laid hands on that boy and they prayed for him. And six weeks time he was out playing football, which the doctor said he would never, never possibly do. This is our God. This is our God. You see, the, the supernatural ought to attract us. We ought to be more and more eager to press into the supernatural and to work with God to experience things that only God can do. You know, the poor old non-Christian has to struggle along in his or her own strength, his or her own wisdom. It's a hard grind, but we're not like that. We have access, direct access, to the supernatural power of the living God. Now, faith, healings, miracles. Well, we've touched on miracles already in a sense. A number of words are used to describe miracles in the New Testament. Obviously, words that refer to power are applicable, and also words that refer to signs. Signs. Because it's a sign, you see, not only of God's great power and love and compassion, but it's a sign also that God loves to meet people's needs. I'm not going to take time to go into detail over that. It's fairly obvious. What is the definition of a miracle? Well, miracles are events that seem to override or contradict the so-called laws of nature. Ah, but then these so-called laws of nature are simply God's usual way of doing things. Yes. The way God usually operates, that's what the laws of nature are summarizing. But is there any reason why God should not from time to time do what to him and to us would be unusual things, exceptional things? Well, of course, we've mentioned already the exodus from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, to let this vast number of Israelites escape from bondage. And what happened to the Egyptians when they tried to follow? The Lord sent the water back and drowned them. A miracle, a complete miracle. Later on, the crossing of the Jordan. Another miracle to get them across this river, to dry up the river, get them into the promised land. We come to the Gospels. First miracle Jesus performed. The wedding, at Ca wedding feast in Cana. Wine ran out. Embarrassment for the host and hostess. And Jesus was there. And Jesus' mother spoke to the servants and uttered priceless words of advice. Referring to her son, she said, whatever he tells you, do it. And he did. And Jesus said, fill these great big containers of water up to the brim. Fill them up to the brim. And he did. And when they poured out the contents, they had the best wine they ever tasted. A sign, a sign that God delights to meet people's needs. And God can, when he chooses, suspend his normal rules of operation and go beyond what is normally going to happen in ordinary, everyday life. Let's remember that miracles are involving very often human beings, not just the people whose needs are met, but the people like my Nigerian brothers who were involved in doing the praying. You see, one way in which miracles come to pass is when that supernatural gift of faith is imparted by God and employed by one of his children. You know, what happened in the Old Testament as well as the New. Think of what happened in the days of Elijah when the place was actually in a desperate, the nation was in a desperate state because you see King Ahab and his wicked Queen Jezebel who was into all the most demonic stuff of the day had brought down the judgment of God on that nation and Elijah had prophesied three and a half years of drought and three and a half, well, no rain until he said so and three and a half years passed before the rain fell 
And then he has this showdown with the false prophets. 850 false prophets. And Elijah takes them on single-handed. And he proposes this test to see who really is God. Why don't you build an altar? Why don't you sacrifice an animal? I'll do the same. And each party did their thing. And just to avoid any deception at all, or any suspicion of deception, Elijah made sure that his altar and his sacrifice were drenched, totally drenched in water. And then the others who had done all sorts of gimmicky things and ridiculous things, cutting themselves and so on, seeking their God's help and nothing happened. Because Elijah had proposed, the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And we read there, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Oh, I love this. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the very water in the trench. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate, and they cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And you see, if we read that, and we do read that sort of thing happening, in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, before He died on the cross, before He raised from the dead, before the Holy Spirit was poured out all over the place, if these things could happen in the Old Testament times, why can it not happen now? Oh, God of Elijah, hear our cry, says one of the hymns. Send the fire. Send the fire. And of course, a simple reminder from the New Testament of the power of Jesus. You remember Lazarus, whose sisters Mary and Martha were very upset when he took ill, and they sent word to Jesus, and Jesus seemed to know how to come. And when Jesus got to the home, Lazarus was dead and buried four days. But Jesus said, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. And Jesus, our Lord, stood outside that tomb and uttered a simple command, Lazarus, come out. And he who was dead came out, wrapped in his grave clothes. And Jesus said, untie him. And let him go. Miracles. Our God is a miracle working God. Now there are three other gifts of the Spirit that I'm not going to attempt to look at with you this evening. Some other time perhaps we'll look into them. They are a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, and discernment. To discern spirits. In other words, to be very aware where evil unclean spirits are at work I don't know what the Lord is saying to you but I like to think that through these studies on the Holy Spirit your appetite is perhaps being whetted a bit to move a bit further into the supernatural you see it really this dimension really only begins when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit when you're baptized in water you experience something, obviously past many spiritual experience, you go in wet and you come out dry but hopefully you experience a lot more than that and likewise being baptized in the Spirit is not just taking it by faith, oh God says I've got the Holy Spirit so I must have the Holy Spirit, thank you very much no, it's about experiencing the impact of the Holy Spirit upon our life and being released in one or more of these gifts of the Spirit. They're gifts, they're not rewards. We don't deserve them. But if God wants to bless us with them and bless others through them, who are we to say, I don't want that? Because God's gifts are all, all, not just good gifts, they're perfect gifts. So at the end of the evening, if you're sensing you want to respond and reach out to God, I'm very happy to pray with you and ask the Lord. If you need to be baptized in the Spirit, we'll have to start. If you already have been baptized in the Spirit, but 
have perhaps given up praying in tongues and would like that to be reactivated, well, that is something that happens also. Let's pray. Father, we realize we've done much listening, much thinking, we've heard much speaking. Please just help people to forget anything that is not really relevant to them at this point in time. But please, Father, underline for those in this gathering you want to particularly bless this evening. Let's underline for them what you want to further say to them and what you want to give to them and what you want to do both in them and through them. Take away all fear, all apprehension. Help us to understand that your supernatural power is so safe, completely safe. And Lord, increase our faith to reach out for whatever you want to impart to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.